leading us in worship. And uh, you guys signed a card. I, you guys all signed a card. And so I'm going to have Kat come up and get this card. Even though this isn't her last week officially, um, she's going to be around another couple more months. But uh, it, it's I, I've had the privilege of serving alongside Kat for a very, very long time, actually. She used to be the children's director when I was a Sunday school teacher, okay? And now we get to serve together in, in uh, worshiping. So for the last, I think it's been three, four, five, long time. She's been, come on up, come on up, leading us in worship. This is from everybody, just some well wishes. And, and this is from uh, Emily and I for you, okay? And so thank you for ushering us into the presence of God every single week. I appreciate you so much. Mm -hmm. And we're going to, you know, enjoy you while you're here and miss you when you're gone. So, yep. If you would like to find out what she's doing and everything that's going on, you can talk to her. <laughs> but God bless you. Thank you, Kat. Thank you. Thank you so much. Well, we're in the book of, of Joel. I really appreciate not only uh, Isaac and, and Dominic and Emmanuel leading us up here in worship, but um, Kat and Rebecca as well. And Joel is one of those books that sets the tone for what it means to worship the Lord. In fact, in Joel chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, and this is a theme of the book of Joel, it says this, Yet even now declares Yahweh, a return to me with all your heart, and with fasting and weeping and wailing, and tear your heart and not your garment. And now return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness, and relenting concerning evil. And so, Father, as we approach this uh, short but amazing book, the, the, this minor prophet that it uh, packs a powerful punch, uh, th this, this prophet who speaks to not only the time when it was written, but also to our time as well, throughout time, reminding us what um, not only the consequences are for staking you, but, but also what it means to come back to you, that a true repentance, not, not some outward showing that you know, many people can do just by you know, uh, crying or, or you know, looking depressed or or rending their clothes as we read here but it's the inward the inward heart what it means to remove those calluses what it means to have a heart that is soft and, and no longer hard what it means to return to the for our first love return to our lord and so lord as we come before this book, Lord, I ask that you prepare our hearts, you open up our eyes, you help us to see your word clearly speak to us tonight. And Lord, I, I do, I thank you so much for this church, the, the leadership, our, our pastors, Pastor Mike Ostheimer and, and Mike Atkinson and, and Mike Cosper and Pastor Jason, Lord, I ask that you give them wisdom and in directing our church and leading our church. And then also for our elders too, as we pray for them on the the first Wednesday of the month, Lord, I ask that you uh, guide and direct Ron and Larry and put your blessings upon their lives as they guide this church, Lord. 
I thank you so much for the servants, those that are behind the scenes that receive no compensation. They just do it because they love you. And in heaven, those rewards are going to be truly great. Even those people that are outside right now, they're making sure the kids are not only um, enjoying themselves, but growing closer to you, even themselves uh, imparting their own um, uh, heart and their own lives into these kids, Lord. So, Lord, I ask that you would help us tonight to have hearts of gratitude toward you. We love you in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. And Joel is one of those books. That, it's one of those books in the Bible. If, if you haven't been to this section before, you can easily miss it, super easily. You can turn just one or two pages and you miss the whole book. It's one of those minor prophets that's very, very tiny. It's only three chapters. A very, very small uh, book. Joel was written, and, and, you know, there's lots of different commentary on this. Uh, between 800 B.C. and 600 uh, B.C., we have no kings listed, so we can't really tell what period of time uh, this is in. The only personal uh, verse that we have about Joel is about his dad. That's it. His name is Pethuel, and that's it. Uh, but Joel, of course, means uh, Yahweh is Elohim, or J-O, which is the short and firm uh, uh, form of Jehovah, and L, the shortened form of Elohim. And so whenever you see these two uh, letters combined, whether it's the book of John or the book of, of Jonah or Jehoshaphat or El, um, El Shaddai or Elisha, or Elijah, whenever you see those short forms of the big words or the names or the titles of God, it's part of the actual name. In fact, Joel is one of only two names in the Bible that contain not only the name of God, but the title of God as well. Uh, Yahweh being the name of God and Elohim being the title of a god the only other one of course is elijah which flips them el at the beginning and yah at the end pethuel by the way his dad's name means vision of god or vision of elohim and so for the next three chapters we're gonna see what it means for joel to receive these visions of God, not only about his own time, but about the future as well. The theme of Joel is the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is mentioned seven times in the book of Joel, more times than any other book in the entire Bible. The day of the Lord takes full focus in this book. Starting with verse 2, we read on, it says, Hear this, O elders, give ear, all inhabitants of the land. Has anything like this happened in your day or in your father's day? Recount about it to your sons and let your sons recount about it to their sons and their sons to the next uh, generation. Joel is talking not only uh, to the elderly, but throughout the generations that are to come in the Israelite nation. Look at what it says there in verse 4. What the gnawing locust has left, the swarming locust has consumed. What the swarming locust has left, the creeping locust has consumed. And what the creeping locust has left, the stripping locust 
has consumed. We, we live in a agricultural area. I remember my grandpa telling about what was called the dust bowl when my grandpa was, you know, uh, having kids of his own. He had uh, three kids at that time, and then he had a fourth one on the way. They moved from Texas to California. And the reason why they did that, because all the land in Texas was being turned into what was called a dust bowl or what we call now the, the Great Depression. And so he had a marketable skill. He was a welder. He came out here and he worked at the, uh, uh, at the, the Navy Yard in, in Huntington Beach and he welded, uh, you know, ships. That's what he did. But he always talked about the crop sharing or, or the crops. And, and whenever these locusts would come through, and if you've ever seen the face of a locust, it's actually pretty scary, a, a, a grasshopper, if you will. Uh, they, they can devour crops, acres and acres of crops, just completely devastating uh, the land. And of course, when Joel is writing this, he's describing these locusts or these grasshoppers, not just a couple, not just maybe 10 or, or 20, but literally millions and millions of locusts coming through and devouring the land. It says, verse 5, Awake, drunkards, and weep, and wail, all you wine drinkers, on account of the sweet wine that is cut off from your mouth. For a nation has come against my land, mighty and without number. Its teeth are the teeth of lions. It has the fangs of a lioness. It is made by vine a desolation, and my fig tree splinters. It has stripped them bare and cast them away. What have those locusts done to the land? just completely devastate. And in an agricultural society, uh, of course, this is your livelihood. This is your dependence on your next meal. Now, it's interesting to see all the different type of locusts. It, most of us think, okay, a grasshopper, right? You know, there's well, how many types of grasshoppers or locusts? Locusts and grasshoppers are very, very different, by the way. My wife, whenever she finds a grasshopper in the yard, guess what she does with it? Kills it right away. We used to chuck them to the chickens because, you know, chickens love grasshoppers, right? But, but literally in the Hebrew language, there's multiple words for locusts. And in our translation that we have here, in the English translation, it describes what they do. The first one is a, a gnawing locust, and then you have the, the swarming locust, and then you have the creeping locust, and then you have the stripping locust. Every one a different Hebrew word. Especially in an agricultural society, you know, you have to name these things. In fact, I, I remember when I was in the Philippines, they have seven different words for rice and how it's prepared. It's amazing because you cannot have a meal without rice. It's not called breakfast, lunch, or dinner unless you have rice with it. Every, everything else is just ulam or, or side dish. And, and so in a society that's dependent upon uh, agriculture, naming these different types of locusts that come in different types of the year, they're all coming at once now. They're all just 
devastating the crops, not only the tops, but the middles and the bottoms as well. And if you've ever looked at a grasshopper's face, you can see the description that Joel is giving to these locusts. What do they look like? It says it there in verses 6 and 7. Have you ever seen the mouth of a locust or a grasshopper? They're scary, huh? You know, they, they, they literally have teeth. And th those eyes that are, you know, bulging out, th those legs that stick to you, and you're all creeping out, it's okay. Now imagine a devastating crop. Verse 8, it continues on, wail like a virgin girded with sackcloth for the bridegroom of her youth. The grain offering and the drink offering are cut off from the house of Yahweh. The priests mourn, the ministers of Yahweh. The field is destroyed, the land mourns, for the grain is destroyed and the new wine dries up. Fresh oil fails. Be ashamed, O farmers, wail, O vine dressers, for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field perishes. The vine dries up, the fig tree fails, the pomegranate and the palm also, the apple tree and all the trees of the field dry up. Indeed, rejoicing dries up from the sons of men. Not, not only those wheat crops or those grain crops are destroyed, but what else is destroyed? All the trees as well. Anything with a green leaf, right? Just completely devastated. The, the, the pomegranate tree and the apple tree and all the grape vines that they would get there, not only uh, their juice from, but their nutrients as well. Continues on there. Gird yourselves with sackcloth, lament, O priests. Well, O ministers of the altar, come spend the night in sackcloth, O ministers of my God. For the grain offering and the drink offering are withheld from the house of your God. Set apart a fast as holy. Call for an, a, a solemn assembly. Gather the elders and all the inhabitants of the land to the house of Yahweh your God and cry out to Yahweh. Not, not only does this affect uh, the common people, but it affects the priests as well. Because what was the livelihood of a priest? Yeah, it was the sacrifices, it was the grain offerings, it was the, the new wine offerings. It was all those tithes that the people gave from their produce that would come into the house of God. And, and what is Joel saying about these priests? And by the way, not only does it say it here, but also in the previous paragraph in, in verse 8 as well. It, it describes these priests as the ones that should be rending their heart uh, repenting for what they have done in leading the people astray. Because where does it always start? If the pastor can do it, means I can do it, right? If that person that I see that's uh, some religious leader can do it, why can't I? God is always an equal opportunity judger. In verse 15, it says it there, Alas for the day, for the day of Yahweh is near. It will come as destruction from the Almighty. Has not food been cut off from your, before your eyes? Gladness and joy from the house of our God. The seeds shrivel under their clods. 
The storehouses are desolate. The barns are pulled down for the grain is dried up. What, what, what happens when a society that's dependent upon their agriculture that actually has celebrations around certain seasons, the beginning of the harvest and the middle of the harvest and at the end of the harvest, where, where the different fall feasts were part of their celebration because they would bring in these crops and they would celebrate what God had done for them. And now what has happened to all those crops? Completely destroyed. Completely eaten up. Do, do you love the, you know, the way it describes it? The seeds shrivel under their clods. The storehouses are desolate. The barns are pulled down for the grain is dried up. Do you see it in your head? Truly a, a dust bowl. By, by the way, this is called a land of plenty or a land of milk and honey, right? And now what has happened to the land? It's dry. Not only does it affect the agriculture, the, the growing crops, but also in verse 18, how beasts grown, the herds of cattle wander aimlessly because there is no pasture for them. Even the flocks of sheep suffer. What happens to the animals? And, and by the way, you know, especially with, you know, personal sins, we always, you know, try to explain them away, but does sin just affect you? No. In fact, the very first sin caused a curse upon the whole earth, right? The same thing here. Sin is causing destruction. Verses 19 and 20, to you, O Yahweh, I cry. This is Joel saying this personally himself. For fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness, and the flame has burned up all the trees of the field. Even the beasts of the field pant for you, for the water brooks are dried up, and fire has consumed the pastures of the wilderness. What is the cause of dry ground or, or dry plants? What comes after? Fire. Easily sparked completely. We, we understand that living here in, in California. But this is addressed to the priests. This is addressed to the, the religious leaders with no food or animals for sacrifice. The religious hierarchy is called by God to obedience and humbleness. It starts with the religious hierarchy. It, it starts with, we call it the church. It starts with those that know God personally. If, if we're not repenting, then what will the world think? You know, they don't care, right? It starts with us, and that's why in chapter 2, it's so important as we come to the theme here. And by the way, I told you at the beginning when we first started uh, the Minor Prophets, you know, they're very, very short. This book is extremely short. I'm so glad you're here. I'm so glad you're, you're watching online. And, and if you're not, you can always uh, download it. But, uh, you know, it's, it's just one week. You miss it. You don't get it, right? Especially if you're, you're here, you understand what is going on. You, you feel the Spirit of God hopefully working in your own life. These little books are very, very important. 
Chapter 2, verse 1, it says, Blow a trumpet in Zion, make a loud shout on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble, for the day of Yahweh is coming. That's the second time we've read it in this, in this book alone. Surely it is near a day of darkness and thick darkness, a day of clouds and dense gloom as the dawn is spread over the mountains. So there is a numerous and mighty people. There has never been anything like it, nor will there be again after it for the years from generation to generation. A fire consumes before them and behind them a flame of burns. And the land is like the Garden of Eden before them, but a desolate wilderness behind them. The comparison is in chapter 1, we see these locusts that come through and devastate the land. And now in chapter 2, we see an army. A, a, an army made up of, of men that when they come through, at, before them it's all green, and then after them it's all death. It looks like a, 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 a lush land in front of them, and when they're done, they've looted it all. They've completely destroyed everything uh, behind them. Look what they look like. Their appearance is like the appearance of horses. And like war horses, so they run. With a noise as of chariots, they leap on the tops of the mountains. Like the crackling of a flame of fire consumes the stubble. Like a mighty people arranged for battle. Before them, the peoples are writhing. All faces turn pale. They run like mighty men. They climb up the wall like men of war. They each march in line, and they do not deviate from their paths. They do not crowd each other. They march everyone in his path, and when they fall against the defending weapons, they do not break rank. They rush on the city. They run on the wall. They climb up into the houses. They enter through the windows like a... Thief. Joel is describing not only what's going to happen in the future in terms of not, not just Israel, the northern kingdom, but also Jerusalem as well. When Assyria came in in 722 BC and literally devastated the northern kingdom of Israel. And, and then again in 586 BC when Babylon comes in and devastates the land. Continues on there in verses 10 and 11. Before them the earth trembles, the heavens quake, the sun and the moon grow dark, and the stars lose their brightness. By the way, with the way that Joel, uh, Joel writes is very descriptive. I, I hope you can see it, right? I mean, you can literally, just by reading it, see what is happening. Just by hearing it, you, you can see what is happening. But Yahweh gives forth his voice before his military force. Surely his camp is very numerous, for mighty is he who does his word. The day of Yahweh, number three, is indeed great and very awesome. And who can endure it? By, by the way, every day should be the Lord's day. Okay, we know that. From being Christians, right? Doesn't matter when you worship God. You don't have to wait until a certain day to worship God. You don't have to just come to church on Sunday, right? Thank God we wouldn't have Wednesday night service, right? Or any of the Bible studies throughout the week. 
but but you understand that every single day should be the Lord's day, but there is only, as we see here, one day of the Lord. And, and it's going to be a day where the Lord literally comes in all of his power and authority. It's going to be an awesome day. And by the way, that's the only time we should ever use that word. All right. We don't use it that often nowadays, but I remember when I was growing up, awesome was just used for everything. Everything was awesome, right? The, the term awesome is only reserved for God. The term awesome should be the description that we use for who he is. And then it comes down to a personal decision of ourselves in verses 12 and 13. And we read this at the beginning, the theme. Yet even now declares Yahweh, return to me with all your heart. Fasting and weeping and wailing until you tear your heart, not your garment. Now return to Yahweh your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting concerning evil. Have you ever had a family member or a friend who just had that ability to be able to cry? And you knew it didn't mean anything. It was, it was your brother or your sister who would run running to your mom or your dad and say, you know, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. And you knew it wasn't real. We're good judges of other people's repentance, right? They, they, they don't know how to do it correctly. They're, they're, we, we always judge the outward appearance of other people and ourselves. We always you know, look at ourselves with grace and mercy. But what does God say? He always sees the heart. And in a society where outward tearing of the garments met, meant some sort of repentance, and even Jesus addresses this in the New Testament, John the Baptist addresses this in the New Testament, those Pharisees and those Sadducees that would yell and pray on the corner trying to get an audience, and what would Jesus tell those people to do? Go into your closet. That's where God sees it. God sees the heart. He doesn't want that show or that, that those mantras or those religious sayings that were so easy to come out of our mouth. And the words mean nothing to us. What is Joel telling people to do? Rend your heart. Tear your heart. Not, not, not the outward appearance. It's the inner, inward. Because that, that's really what determines our actions. You see, when a heart is hard, when a heart is, is callous, if you've ever, you know, had a callous or anything like that, you know, and you, you tear that callous off or you clip that callous off or, or you, you trim that callous off and underneath is smooth skin. That callus was, you know, not only preventing you from feeling things, but when you have that smooth skin again or that sensitive skin again, can you feel what you couldn't feel before? And it's the same thing with our heart, too. When, when we take those calluses off our hearts, when we, when we take that, that hard heart, the Bible describes it as not only... Um, you know, that God does not like 
empty, but also to take that uh, tender heart that's pliable, that seeks after uh, God. What did God say about his reaction to that? For he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and relenting concerning evil. Do we serve an amazing, awesome God? Yes, we do. Psalms chapter 51, verse 17 says this, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart, O God, you will not uh, despise. What kind of a heart is God looking for? I love Isaiah chapter 66. Not, not only is, is God looking for a, a, a humble heart or a, a contrite heart or a, a broken heart, but he literally searches the whole world for those kind of people. I love what Isaiah 66 verses 1 and 2 says. Thus says Yahweh, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. Where then is a house you could build for me? Where is a place that I may rest? For my hand made all things. And God owns everything. He doesn't need a, a nice big building for people to worship him in. What is he looking for? It tells us in the last part of that verse. But to this one I will look. Who is God looking for? It's not a building. It's not a plate. It's not something big and shiny and expensive. To him who is humble and contrite of spirit and who trembles at my word. Those are the kinds of people that God is. That's the congregation that God is looking for. Thank God I, I see you in this room. You desire that. Verse 14, it continues on. Who knows whether he will turn or relent and, and leave a blessing behind, even a grain offering and, and a drink offering for Yahweh, your God. Remember, all those offerings had been eaten up by the locusts. All, all those offerings had been burnt up. God, God wants a, a heart that of repentance and what is he going to do? And by the way, thank God that, you know, the rest of this chapter brings about blessing. But it's because of the heart of the people. They've changed their heart. In fact, look what it says there in verse 15. Uh, Blow a trumpet in Zion, set apart a fast as holy. A call for a solemn assembly. Gather the people, set apart the congregation as holy. Assemble uh, the elders gather the infants and the nursing babes. Let the bridegroom come out of his, his chamber and the bride out of her bridal chamber. Let the priests and the ministers of Yahweh weep between the porch and the altar. And let them say, pity your people, O Yahweh, and do not make your inheritance a reproach. A byword among the nations. Why should they among the people say, where is their God? In fact, it was Moses that said, when God said, I'm just going to start all over with you, Moses. Remember, Moses had gone up to the mountains, got the, the Ten Commandments, and he comes down, and what are all the people doing? Worshiping a calf, a golden calf, right? 
that Aaron had made with all the, the loot that they had gotten from, from Egypt. And of course, he throws down those Ten Commandments. God wants to wipe them all out. But what does Moses say to God? What about your reputation? What about your name? You just brought your people out here, and the people of all the nations will say this. Oh, you just brought your people out here to destroy them. And of course, God was working on Moses' heart. God's heart is always to be gracious and merciful. And you've probably been around when there's been revivals. There's been whether it was in the, you know, the, the state capital or the, the, you know, the national capital or in Washington, D.C., or maybe in a church, a revival meeting. And so many times it's very short-lived. But what does God want from his people? A lifelong repentance that turns to him daily. He wants humble people, broken heart that cry upon God. It's a call for corporate repentance. From, from the very top of the religious order all the way down, the congregation, even as it says here, the, the nursing babes and the babies. Thank God we got a nursery where they literally, you know, um, you know, feed in on the, the sermons, you know. They get to hear it as well. Verse 18, then Yahweh will be zealous for his land and will spare his people. Then Yahweh will answer and say to his people, behold, I'm going to send you grain and new wine and oil, and you will be satisfied and full with them. I will never again make you a reproach among the nations, but I will remove the northern military force far from you. I will drive it into a parched and desolate land and its vanguard into the eastern sea and its rear guard into the western sea and its stench will rise up and its foul smell will rise up for it has done great things. Who will bring about a victory? By the only, the only one who can, by the way. It's not Israel's armies that are going to bring about the victory. Who is the one that's going to bring about the victory? God will. Do not fear, O land. Rejoice and be glad, for Yahweh has done great things. Do not fear, beasts of the field, for the, the pastures of the wilderness have turned green, for the trees have borne fruit. The fig tree and the vine have yielded their full force. So rejoice, O sons of Zion, and be glad in Yahweh your God. For he has given you the early rain and righteousness. He has poured down for you the rain, the early and the late rains as well. Last In the last chapter, chapter 1, we saw all these different types of locusts, right? Each having their own name. And now what do we see? Three different things with three different names. Again, in an agricultural society, relying upon the rain, they had a name, a literal name for the early rain and the middle rain and then the late rain. And so these rains were super important. And what would happen when locusts would come through and devastate the crop? What do you need to replenish the crop? Rain. Thank God we've got a lot of rain this year, right? You know, yeah, it's, 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 it's very, very good. 
Verse 24, the threshing floors will be full of grain and the vats will overflow with the new wine and the oil. In the previous chapter, it was all devastation. In the previous chapter, it was all brown. In the previous chapter, it was all dry. In the previous chapter, there was fire and locusts. And now what do we see in chapter 2? If we just, if we just read through the book, do we see what God's going to do? That This is what happens when you disobey me and this is what happens when you obey. By the way, God's um, replenishment is always greater, always more abundant than the devastation. Look at this. Look at this. Look at what it says. Verse 25, then I will pay back to you in full for the years when the swarming locust has consumed the creeping locust, the stripping locust, and the gnawing locust, my great military force which I sent among you, and you will have plenty to consume and be satisfied and praise the name of Yahweh your God. Isn't that amazing? The, 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 the literal reversal of what God has done. Is God always able to trump the devastation and even multiply the good thing? I always tell the men on, on Monday nights that not only am, am I grateful that they're there, but I'm, I'm grateful that they're, they give up a Monday night. They give up an hour and a half or so of, of their Monday night to come to church. And I ask that God would multiply that time for them. That God would reimburse that time to them. Because, you know, they're, they're coming from long, hard days of work. And they, they come and they sacrifice their, their time to be there. And same thing with you on Wednesday night. I'm so grateful for that. But does God restore the time that you give to him, even multiplying it, making, making the time where you, you know, you're, you know, you've given up to the Lord. You know, many times we, we you know, sometimes think this is a burden or something like that. But, but in actuality, God blesses you for doing this and overabundantly blesses your time. You're not giving up time, you're gaining time. Thus you will know that I'm in the midst of Israel, that I am Yahweh your God. By the way, what is the definition of Joel? Jehovah your God. Yahweh your God. The name of Jehovah. By the way, not only in the book of Joel, but also when we get to the book of Micah, his name, you know, means who is like the Lord. And Micah, you know, his name is going to be repeated multiple times Throughout the book of Micah, the phrase, who is like the Lord? Same thing with the phrase, Yahweh your God, Joel. But just him standing there with his name proclaiming, my name, Yahweh, is your God. There is no other. And my people will never be put to shame. Wow. What happens to repentant hearts? What happens to repentant heart? God restores. And it will be afterwards that I'll pour out my spirit on all mankind. By the way, you've heard this verse before. You just didn't know where you heard it from. It's from the book of Joel. I will pour out my spirit on all mankind. 
and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, your old men shall dream dreams, your young men shall see visions, even on the male slaves and the female slaves, I will in those days pour out my spirit, and I will put wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood and fire and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness, the moon into blood, and after the great and awesome day of Yahweh comes, and it will be that everyone who calls in the name of Yahweh will be delivered. But by the way, that's a promise. It's a, it's a statement of fact. It, it doesn't say might. It doesn't say maybe. It says I will. A, a definite promise for on Mount Zion and in Jerusalem, there will be those who escape, as Yahweh has said, even among the survivors whom Yahweh calls. By the way, and you probably already know this, you, you, you know, I know you guys uh, love the word of God, but this is quoted in the very first sermon that Peter preaches right after the day of Pentecost. In fact, it was Peter, that guy that had, you know, um, denied Jesus three times. Remember him? And the, then, of course, he, he runs to the tomb and he goes into the tomb. He sees that Jesus isn't there. He, he, you know, they go to the upper room. They actually see Jesus multiple times. It's there at the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee that he jumps into the water after John points out, that's Jesus, that's Jesus. And he, he jumps in and he swims to the shore. And Jesus says those three statements, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my sheep, tend my lambs, care for the flock. And Peter, now after the day of Pentecost, when the Holy Spirit comes, those 120 people, they're in the upper room, by the way. It's Peter that stands up and preaches a sermon. In fact, he quotes three times from the Old Testament. You can, you know, we're only going to look at one of these, but you can read the whole sermon in Acts chapter 2. But in Acts chapter 2, verse 14, we're just going to read seven of those verses. It says, but Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. By the way, this is the guy that denied Jesus Christ and has repented. And now he's preaching a sermon. No formal education, by the way. Just a fisherman. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes these verses that we just read. That this prophecy that Joel wrote some 800 years before that Peter is now quoting. And look what he says. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour out my spirit on all mankind and on your son, on your daughters shall prophesy, your young men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams. 
even on your male slaves and your female slaves. I will in those days pour out my spirit. Is God ever a discriminator of persons? Never. Doesn't matter what your skin color is or your nationality. Does God always pour out his spirit on those that ask? Doesn't matter. Verse 19, and I will put wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke, and the sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will be in that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. And 3,000 souls were saved that day, the Bible says. Because a fisherman stood up with a repentant heart and a humble heart. Oh. And of course, the, the church just exploded. What does God want? What kind of people is God looking for? Humble people. Chapter 3, I told you this is quick. Last chapter. For behold, in those days and at that time when I restore the fortunes of Judah, in Jerusalem, I will gather all the nations. By the way, after Peter preached that sermon, that was approximately 33 AD. Uh, j just within 37 years, the nation, the city of Jerusalem, the nation of Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. Did, did they actually repent of what they did? Yes, thank God that there was a dispersion. First Peter talks about this. Second Peter talks about this. You know, those Christians that went into all the world uh, that obeyed the great commission they were protected but but unfortunately what happened to jerusalem in 70 a.d rome comes in and just completely devastates the temples destroyed uh, the the temple is you know even desecrated but what will happen when god brings about a people a, a people with humble hearts will he bless in fact, he's always looking for people that are willing to have not only changed hearts, but hearts that are revived. And it always starts with the word of God. In fact, if, if you go to the uh, chapter 119, Psalms 119, and you read that, that you know, massive chapter, it, it, it says over and over again, 19 times, revive my heart, revive my heart, cause revival within my heart. And it always starts as Psalms 119 is, Every single verse talking about the word of God. Every single verse. Where does it start? Where does revival start? From the word of God. From the word of God. In verse 2, I will gather all the nations, bring them down to the valley of Jehoshaphat. Then I will enter into judgment with them there on behalf of my people and my inheritance, Israel, whom they have scattered among the nations, and they have divided up my land God is no longer judging his people that have repented, but now he's judging the nations. The nations that did not repent, they will also cast lots for my people, traded a boy for a harlot, sold a girl for wine that they may drink. This is what the nations had done to the people of Israel, and now God is judging them for it. Is God's judgments always perfect in their perfect time? Thank God. 
Moreover, what are you to me, O Tyre and Sidon and all the regions of Philistia? Are you rendering me a recompense? But if you do not recompense me swiftly and speedily, I will return your recompense upon your own uh, head. By the way, Tyre and Sidon, we talked about these when we were in the book of, of Ezekiel. Philistia is the, what we call the Gaza Strip. Uh, today, Tyre and Sidon were in the north on the, the coastal uh, regions. These were people that traded in people. They, they traded in slaves. They traded in human flesh. And they would come in and they would, you know, raid various Israelite towns and they would do these un horrible things that are described here. Verse 5, since you have taken my silver and my gold, brought my desirable treasures to your temples and sold the sons of Judah and the sons of Jerusalem to the sons of the Greeks in order to remove them far from their borders. We talked about this when we were in the book of, of Daniel where where, you know, not only uh, Belshazzar that we saw, you know, there in chapter 4, who was literally, you know, drinking from the cups from the temple of God, by the way, that his, his grandfather had taken from the temple. And will also sell your sons and your daughters into the hand of the sons of Judah, and they will sell them to the Sabaeans to the distant nation, for Yahweh has spoken. Call out this message among the nations. Set yourselves apart for a war. Rouse the mighty men. Let all the men of war approach. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a mighty man. And in other translations, it says, let the weak say, I am strong. You've probably heard that phrase before. Give thanks with a grateful heart. Give thanks unto the Lord our God. Let the weak say, I am strong. Yeah. Again, from the book of Joel. Isn't that amazing? You were here tonight to hear it. Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down, O Yahweh, your mighty ones. Let the nations be roused up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat. For there I will sit in judgment all the surrounding nations. By the way, this last part here from chapter or verse 9 all the way to the end of the book is about what's called the Millennial Kingdom. And we talked about this. You can look this up actually at the, the end of the book of Ezekiel. Uh, chapters 40 to 48, it describes what's going to happen in the Millennial Kingdom. And, and this is just a synopsis there. But God is going to be here on the earth, and the focus at that time is going to be for the Jews. It's going to be for the Israelites. A thousand-year reign of Christ here on the earth where, where the Jews now have this opportunity not only to see the true Messiah, who Jesus Christ really is, but also what God can do with a nation that have their hearts set upon him. Look what it says there. Send in the sickle for the harvest is ripe. Come tread for the winepress is full. The vats overflow for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the day of decision on the day of Yahweh is near in the valley of decision. One decision separates you from God. One, that's it. Do you believe in God 
or do you not believe in God? You're either a Christian, a follower of Christ, or not. That's it. And judgment, of course, is coming. This word decision here, and again, it's repeated, so it's one of those words that you kind of have to talk about, well, you know, think on, meditate upon. It means a, a strict decision that no one gets out of. Not a single person will get out of this decision. The, the judgment of God is going to come, and when he comes, he's going to ask only one question. Not, not all the things that you've done or, or you know, what your status in life is or, or, or who you are, but what did you do with my son? Do, do you believe in my son or do you not? That's it. That's the only criteria for heaven. Doesn't matter how many times you went to church or what, how much you gave to the church or, or what you did for, you know, your, your neighbor or the world or your, you know, whatever it is. All the good works. It's just filthy rag. There's only one strict decision that matters. And it's what we do with the Messiah, Jesus Christ. The sun and the moon grow dark. The stars lose their brightness. And Yahweh roars from Zion. By the way, this is the segue into the next book. Because Amos starts with this phrase, and it's powerful. The roaring of God. The roaring of Yahweh. Everybody listens, even E.F. Hutton, right? Everybody is going to hear the roar of God on that day, on the day of the Lord. He gives forth his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and the earth quake. Even the earth responds to the roar of God. Yahweh is a refuge for his people. A strong defense for the sons of Israel. You've probably heard this many, many times in the book of Psalms, right? I love Psalm 61. For you have been a refuge for me, a tower of strength before the enemy. Let me sojourn in your tent forever. Let me take refuge in the shelter of your wing. This is what Joel is predicting. This is what Joel's looking forward to. By the way, verse 17, again, the repetition of the name of Joel or the definition of Joel, the meaning of Joel then you will know that I am Yahweh, your God. Again, Joel standing up there, the definition of his name, the name of God and the title of God, there in the definition of who he is, prophesying to the people that have hard hearts, stiff necks, and are rejecting God. Just repent, come back. You will know that I am Yahweh, your God, dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain, so Jerusalem will be holy. And strangers will pass through it no more. It will be in that day that the mountains will drip with sweet wine. The hills will flow with milk. And all the brooks of Judah will flow with water. And a spring will go out from the house of Yahweh to water the valley of Shittim. You understand what he's saying there? Well, what did it look like at the beginning of the book? Just three chapters before. Brown devastation because the people had hard hearts and 
we're not repenting. And now what happens when there's revival in the land? What does it look like? And again, the description is amazing, by the way. Egypt will become a desolation, and Edom will be a desolate wilderness because of the violence done to the sons of Judah, in whose land they had shed blood. All the surrounding areas will be desolate, but Judah will be inhabited forever, and Jerusalem from generation to generation. Again, that roar will avenge their blood, which I have not avenged. Indeed, Yahweh dwells in. I am. Thank God. By the way, this prepares us now for the Lord's Supper, communion. It's the guys to come up, the men to come up. We're going to be, and, and we'll be doing this as we go through the book of the Minor Prophets, rather than going to the book of Matthew or, or, or one of the other uh, uh, Gospels. We're going to be actually going through communion in 1 Corinthians here, verse Corinthians 11. And, and the men are going to be coming around. They're going to be passing out the elements. And I ask that you just, just hold on to them, please. Just, just think about as we, we read this text, as the worship team plays, we'll, we'll take it together. We'll do it corporately. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 27, it says this, Therefore, whoever eats the bread and drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must test himself, and in so doing, he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who drink, eats and drinks, eats and, and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick and a number sleep. But if we judge ourselves rightly, we, we do not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And so as the men pass out the element, just hold it and just, just contemplate. Is there anything you need to repent of? Is there anything you need to ask the Lord for forgiveness of? And just bring that to the Lord. Maybe, maybe there's someone you need to go to. I don't know. But this means nothing. This means nothing if you're not a Christian. You don't have to be a member of this church. You don't have to be, you know, come here a certain number of times or whatever. You just need to know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And by the way, you can do that tonight, right now. But if you are a Christian and there's things in your heart that you need to get right with the Lord, uh, please bring those things to him now as we worship together.